0: What kind of interaction does Cher throw at you last minute when you're on stage? Because like, I'd love to know that. Like you're in front of a crowd, you're 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 about to, to cross paths. What does she do?
2: Oh, well, well, if you cross good cross paths, sometimes she wanted to do the back to back, or you know, she'd sometimes rest her uh, arm on my shoulder or whatever and sing and. Um, so things like that, that, you know, you just kind of have to be ready for if she's going to do it and be like, okay. And not look like a deer in headlights and kind of look like you're, you know, but at the same time, don't become known as the guy who knocked over Cher accidentally <laughs> on stage. <laughs>
1: You'd be on DMZ later that night or whatever. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here. As always, I'm back again, the full trio Uh, with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. It's good to have you back, Ben. We missed you the the last couple weeks in the intros. I've been hobbling up and down the (laughs) stairs. In fact, I... I...
0: Ben,
3: you want to fill in our guests on what what happened to you? Well...
0: First off, my leg filled up like a balloon, so I couldn't actually, like, in my, in my knee, so we're in the middle of talking to Chris Caffrey from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and, I, and my fiance Cindy, who's a nurse, I had to, like, you, you guys might have seen me if you actually watch the YouTube, like, the seven of you. Um, I, like, leave in the middle. That's basically me have, going upstairs, having a, a conversation with Cindy, and having her go, like, oh, yeah, no, you need to have that drained. Like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a lot of fluid. So it, I couldn't walk, and then I go to the doctor and they go, what's wrong with you? And I show them the video that Corey's going to play of my dog mutilating me, but then they realize it's actually not my knee that gets hurt, it's my back, and that's when I went to my DO just a day ago, which is a doctor of osteopathy, and basically said, this is why my disc is still extra herniated. So um, I'm basically like the equivalent of Keith
1: Richards right now, except less healthy. Well, it's, it's, it's good to have you back.
3: We're, we're glad to have you back this week, and before we get too off the rails, I'll just introduce our guest for this week, Joel Hoekstra from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, White Snake, many um, other projects. Busy guy. Um, busy guy. Bu- bu- busy, busy guy. <laughs> works really um, we, we hard. Works really hard. We got only one episode with him, but you know we were well, grateful to get Well, he was to busy doing a
0: lesson afterwards. He had like seven When we told yeah. him, we're like, hey man, we might do two lessons, he was just like I have so many things that I need to do before I go to bed tonight.
3: <laughs> well, meanwhile, I'm exhausted every moment that I'm not doing something on tour. And he's talking about how he doesn't remember a day that he hasn't been productive on his off time on tour. It's, I mean, I will say it was pretty amazing to hear that level of energy. Somebody that just seems to have an endless reserve of
1: it. Yeah, if you want to reinforce the idea of hard work and uh, and how that can lead to success, this this would be the episode. But um, yeah, so it's... Uh, limited limited we've got about 45 minutes um but you know a lot of information we tried to cram in there and uh we want to do just a real quick uh update from our sponsor lost symphony uh and that is that we are working on new music believe it or not um for anyone that is involved, or, you know, checks out this podcast that has no idea we are in a band. Uh, <laughs> that's we how we know played. each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how this whole thing has come together. And uh, believe it or not, we're actually working on new music. It's been, it's been a, few, it's been a little bit, but I'm well, uh, pretty excited about it.
0: For those that don't know, Lost Symphony, we are in a symphonic um, metal project. I wouldn't even say it's totally metal, like kind of like an epic, like instrumental thing. But you know, we kind of play it down. For a band that has, you know, Mar- we had Marty Friedman play with us on a bunch of songs. Jeff Loomis. We've had uh, we- Ollie from All That Remains Before He Passed Away. This is one of the last projects he did. Like, you know, cheers to the heavens to our, our, our brother Ollie. Um, Nuno Bettencourt. Like, listen, I got, and I'll take credit for this, Nuno Betancourt, Alex Skolnick, Richard Shaw, and Marty Friedman all to play on a song together. And despite it being triumphant. The hardest thing was to get all those pandas in the cage. So if you want to know what's going on with Lost Symphony, we got even more pandas in the cage this time because you may have seen them on our episodes. You calling my got, friends pandas? <laughs> they're the best. They're so cute and adorable. Like, come on, Mariko. She's a panda. <laughs> you don't think so?
3: I agree that she is cute and adorable. We can ask her if she likes being compared to a panda. But yeah, to continue your thought, we did get She's like a I'm rabbit. Like, our friends, Mariko and Zuzana, who have also been my bandmates and in Starset, uh, Z currently is, um, to record on a new song that we are working on. So Ben, you can continue with what you were saying.
0: Along with an absolute, com- incredibly insane, so like anyone that's read about Lost Symphony, we were just in Guitar World Magazine. It actually happened in April this month. Uh, Slash is on the cover. I'm in the magazine with Marty Friedman and Nuno, so like it's it's real. Uh, one of the things that we said about finding Kelly, our guitarist, in our band was the fact that he was the greatest guitar player that no one had ever heard of. And Hector Hellion, if you haven't seen this guy, go onto YouTube and type in Hector Hellion, H-E-L-L-I-O-N. Dare I say I found another Jedi? And the irony is is that one of the guy, our our buddy Scott, who's behind a lot of this... One of his friends was trying to troll us by saying, oh, if you guys want to be really good, you should get this guy on bass and sent a video of
3: Hector Heliot.
0: And we were already talking to him.
3: So, <laughs> Gold star so- for you, Ben. You are definitely the Jedi of getting Jedi musicians. So <laughs> you you definitely win the award for that one. You have managed to get all of us together and it is very exciting to have this new song to work on.
1: Yeah, and then we'll, we'll be dropping some, you know, you know hints about it and some some behind the scenes footage and some updates as it gets closer to release but we just wanted to kind of let people know that lost symphony is still a thing we're still doing things doing some pretty cool things and you definitely want to stay tuned
0: but i want to also mention that the artwork is done by a guy named boris Gro. and so if you've gone and you've seen anything from lost symphony if you go into to lostsymphony.com and look at any of the unbelievable artwork and I I don't say that because I drew it I say it because I found the guy because I thought he was freaking unbelievable a guy named Boris Groh and he's from Ukraine and he actually drew a picture of a dude giving the middle finger to a boat that got bombed the very next day. And he's now the official stamp of the entire country of Ukraine during this terrible war. So we want to send our love to our friend Boris Groh yep. and the artist behind Absolutely. including this new single that you could, you'll you be able to get a signed poster with um, when it comes out. Uh, for every song we've ever done, the visual component is our Ukrainian friend Boris Groh, who is now... As you can see Zelensky the president of Ukraine holding up this stamp this picture it's now become almost like the the face of fuck you Russia from our friend Boris Groh on the stamp for
1: Ukraine so yeah yeah you kick ass Boris it's pretty crazy Um, yeah so stay tuned we're gonna have more for you you know in the coming weeks and months but uh, right now I think we should get into our episode
3: so here we are, well, Joel, part one. But hold
1: on, with Joel Hoekstra, from Whitesnake, that from Trans-Siberian
3: Orchestra. Ben, you might have missed the Night part Ranger, where I introduced him already. From From Rock of Ages. <laughs> from, ben missed the part Cher. that I'm a co-host on this episode. He was on Broadway for years. He's
0: taught 70 students a week since the dawn of time.
3: Okay.
1: I'm tired let's roll talking about Is it. my
3: internet working? <laughs> yeah,
1: subscribe. Subscribe.
3: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Twenty Twenty. I'm Siobhan Cronin here, as always, with my cohorts Benny Goodman and Corey Peza. And this week we have a very, very special guest—probably the busiest guitar player in the country, in the world. I don't know. You're everywhere. <laughs> but this is Joel Hoekstra of Trans Siberian Orchestra, White Snake, many other projects. He has a lot to teach us about guitar playing. I liked him Night Ranger. I thought you kicked musician. ass at Night Ranger. Yeah, yeah. But I, <laughs> I, I follow you. I, I met you playing in the string section in Trans-Siberian Orchestra many years ago. And I've followed you since on Facebook, Instagram, all that. And you're all over the place doing amazing things. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about your work and your career and guitar playing and all the above.
2: Oh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah.
0: My first, my first question is, so when I saw you with Whitesnake. I saw John Sykes back in the day. He's this big, tall guy with crazy hair that fucking murders it. Then there's this guy, Doug Aldrich, big, tall guy with crazy hair. And then you walked on stage. I'm like, oh, who's this guy? And then you fucking blew my mind with Whitesnake. Does David Coverdale have one of those things where it says you must be this tall to play in my band?
2: No, not at all. I mean, I, (laughs) I thank my thanks go to Adrian. In Vandenberg for paving the way for really tall Dutch guys to be in the band, for
0: sure. <laughs> the one guy I didn't say that was tall and it's from the same place as you.
2: Yeah, I think I owe it all to Adrian. Uh, like I said, I, Adrian's taller than I am. I mean, I'm 6'3". I think Adrian's maybe 6'5". Um, so, uh, yeah, he made it easy.
0: Coming in at 6'3", three
2: was no big deal. It was like, all right, the guy's 6'3", that's fine.
0: I mean, White Snake is such a, a holy band for so many people. What's it like to learn such great guitar players' um, solos and be able to represent that, but also be a huge integral part of that history?
2: Oh, I mean, you know, for me, to, I keep it all in perspective and realize that, you know, it's its a total honor to be a small part of the history of the band. I mean, uh, like you said, the history of guitar players that have been through there, amazing catalog of songs to play, you know, some really iconic uh, rock names still in the band, and David Coverdale obviously, and, and Tommy Aldridge and Red Beach. And uh, to get to work with all those guys is an honor for me. And, you uh, You know, I just, like, take a real workman-like approach to it and show up and do the best I can with everything and, um, you know, try and keep it in perspective in terms of what the fans want and uh, just try to do the best job possible, man, you know? Yeah,
1: real quick, so what we generally do is is the first – kind of step in the podcast it's just kind of get a little backstory about you know how you got into music i know that your parents were classical musicians i i read a little bit and you played cello and piano growing up so like kind of like a a relative cliff note version of like you know your journey uh into music and then kind of how what was the first time that you thought that might actually become a career Um,
2: yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, the classical musicians for parents and some music around the whole time. And I, you know, when I, when you hear that I played cello and piano at a young age, it's don't picture anything good.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the exposure counts.
2: Uh, I wasn't amazing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I I just wasn't that into it until I heard rock. Uh, You know, I heard ACDC when I was 11 and that got me really into it. Back in Black in particular. Um, and made me want to get a guitar, and uh, that is really... I mean, it just kind of was like something that I was so into that that, I like to say in a way that's the last real career decision I ever made was when I was 11 to play guitar because I just kind of did it and went, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing this and see what happens, and that's always been the mindset, and there were probably some things that maybe I look back and go, gosh, those were probably dark and tough times, Uh, that I went through but it didn't seem to bother me much I just kind of kept going and just try to stay busy and work at it and I always felt uh, grateful to be able to make a living with the guitar over needing to give up my dream I watched a lot of my friends you know we all started out with that dream and watched them kind of go into other things and uh, it took a long time for things to open up for me you know um but eventually they did, and you know I'm really I'm grateful for it. I think in the end that makes you more grateful when things do work out, rather than somebody who gets it handed to them at a really young age and right. kind of take it for sure. granted when you're older or whatever. So I mean for me I'm just I feel like really lucky to have all the opportunities I get. I don't you know I don't look at it like well of course I deserve them. You know I I feel like there's a lot of great players out there, man. You know I. I'm not uh oblivious to that. So I think the opportunity to have a career and you know, you, you owe it to the music community to be thankful for that at this in today's music business and, and climate. So I mean, my story's a long one, dude. If I broke yeah. it down by like, <laughs> right, day know I've been through, you'd be like, "Jeez, you know, you guys would all be asleep by the time I was done. But um, <laughs>
3: No, but it's interesting. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear, not to cut you off, but that, kind of the first instance of you being a professional guitarist or what, what was the step between, you know, starting to play on guitar and actually joining a band or getting out into the professional world? Like, how did it sort of kick off for you?
2: Uh, I mean, my first band was teenage years, high school. Yeah, having a band that we had our own songs we played covers and uh definitely did a couple years of studying classical guitar in college as well and went to GIT and um you know I was working a lot on my guitar playing i didn 't really have anything as far as professionalism or like any kind of business model together as far as what was going to happen. I did a lot of teaching in my twenties and then kind of supplemented that with gigs so um, to give my career time to build. you know I used to have seventy students a week basically throughout my yeah. whole twenties and teach and then just take off whenever I had gigs and that kind of took the pressure off of that whole, like, you know, i I need a band to, uh, that's a hard road to go, you know? And, and it also kept me out of that land of having a day job and going like, I'm only doing this to help my music career. I like teaching was big for me because it allowed me to have my guitar in my hands, you know, six, seven hours a day, every day. And, um, uh, and okay. give my career time to develop. And
1: that's a job. That's a job. (laughs)
2: Kind of like making my way through the local Chicago scene. And that's a really long story. I mean, playing with Kathy Richardson's band there was a nice step up. She was doing really well locally and put me in with Jim Peterick and playing in his house band. And Kathy got the role as Janis Joplin in a show called Love Janis. And when that went to New York, I became the guitarist in the band for that show. And that's the first time that I gave up teaching. And that was kind of right when I turned 30. And so that was when it really began of like that whole like, oh, I'm not teaching anymore. I'm like just a performer. And um, so that was a big step. And then that Jim Peter seed that was planted from me being in his band and his house band really kind of gave me my opportunity with Night Ranger uh, because he would have guests come and sing their hits. And one of them that was there every year was Kelly Kagi. Uh, the drummer from Night Ranger, and so when they needed somebody to fill in on a show, I became the guy to do that, and they liked me, and had, gave me an opportunity to join the band. And you know, this is even the Reader's Digest version is super long. Sorry.
3: <laughs> no, no, it's great.
2: I did love Janice. and then when that closed, I had uh, one of my subs played in the Turtles, like you know, Happy Together, and because. Um, because the the show Jan, uh, Love Janice was Janice Joplin's uh, guitarist, Sam Andrew, from Big Brother and the Holding Company, I started to do gigs with them. So doing gigs with Turtles, Big Brother and the Holding Company, the director of Love Janice uh, put me in another show called It Ain't Nothing But the Blues. That was a blues show that I went on the road with. And all these things kind of just, you know, I just put my best foot forward with everything that I did. And then, um, like I said, that Night Ranger thing kind of, you know, through doing World Stage, started playing with Scrap Metal, which was the Nelson guys, the Nelson brothers, and Mark Slaughter and Kelly from Night Ranger. And that really, I think, solidified me being able to go into Night Ranger. They felt like, yeah, this guy will do a good job. Um, Getting in there and doing that, and then through doing pit work in New York, subbing in uh, playing broadway musicals like in the pits getting rock of ages and then that was like on stage and kind of had a beautiful symmetry with night ranger because I could take off whenever i played with them and night ranger song was in the show so it was this kind of cool period that developed and then a couple years into that getting the opportunity to audition for trans-siberian and getting that gig and that was difficult because that was the first time i was gonna have to take off of both rock of ages and actually night ranger mm-hmm. for two months uh, but those guys were cool and allowed me to do that, and um, then it just kind of led to the opportunity eventually of auditioning for Whitesnake, um, and that kind of replaced Night Ranger more or less, so it became kind of Snake, Rock of Ages closed, so that went away. Whitesnake and TSO kind of became the thing, and um, then when David needed to take a year off of touring um, to have knee surgery... Uh, I just kind of put feelers out for the opportunities to fill in, and that led to share, And, um, you know, I, that that's kind of the the Reader's Digest version of how all this stuff came together.
0: Bring me through this as a live performer going from a Broadway show to playing with someone like Cher to playing with someone like Whitesnake. And we've obviously heard on this show, we've we've spoken to some of the people in TSO, it's like its own thing. Like, where do you see the distinct differences as a performer being a part of all those different cogs in the musical works?
2: I mean, I I think every gig is different and needs to be treated as such. Certain elements are similar and and transfer over. Um, But every gig takes, there's a little bit of a learning curve to figure out what, is going to make everybody happy and but i think in general it always comes down to hard work and just being the person that puts in the most work on it and tries the hardest and um you know all those experiences with the turtles and big brother and the holding company were valuable for me because that made me have to be somebody that was valuable to the gig beyond like oh he's got great chops you know so it's uh, at at that point you know the turtles had very little to do with like shredding or anything like that it was more or less like singing background vocals being on time being somebody that everybody liked having around um so all these all the gigs have good life lessons to learn and uh i'm not perfect by any means you know i mean it's always a learning process for all of us but i think in general you just try to outwork everybody and try to put your best foot forward and do the best you can
3: yeah, I can imagine too that having some of that classical and Broadway background is a huge leg up in the guitar world. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a violinist, so it's different for me, but we come from classical training for the most part. So it's all reading music and being able to sit in different situations. But I would imagine that probably set you apart for a lot of auditions, just having kind of that experience or the those chops of being in those settings, you know?
2: I think with Trans-Siberian, it definitely helped that I was doing Broadway, and so I, I always like to say you could trace all these things back to things that made absolutely no monetary sense that a lot of people would have turned down. Like when I was subbing on Broadway, I would learn uh, – my friend JJ was who I subbed for. He lives a couple blocks from me in New York, and he's a like a legitimate pit musician. I'm not really a legitimate pit musician, but I would learn his book, whatever he was working on, and get it down, and – it made absolutely no sense. I mean, I would spend like six hours a day for like a few weeks getting it together for the opportunity to maybe go in here and there and be totally stressed out. And, you know, I mean, not that a pit gig pays poorly, but by the time you look at the amount of hours you put in and then you oh, get sure. it one time and, you know, make a little bit of money, you go, gosh, I was probably making like 75 cents an hour or something, or right. to, if, if that, and, you know, same with the Peterick gig. Um, That was a lot of work to do those being in the house band he would give us like 35 songs and it would take me weeks and i would to get prepared to fly in on no rehearsal and play those shows uh and that was if you consider that at that time i was doing eight shows a week with love janice that was it was Dedication, you know, and and again, something that you look at and go, "Gosh, that probably was like made no financial sense," but eventually that landed me in Night Ranger. So, I think just being the person who's willing to put in the work until you're just absolutely can't work anymore.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Well, that's what opens up the opportunity. Hard, hard work will. Yeah, it's like it's a that's an, an old adage, right? The harder you work, the luckier you get. So.
3: But I'm not sure everyone has that motivation. I'm curious, like at what point in your life did you feel like this is what I really want to do? And I know you referenced it earlier, but I feel like that drive has to sort of come from somewhere. Was there an experience, you know, you you mentioned hearing ACDC and that inspired you. But was there a particular experience that made you say, all right, I'm going to go all in and like guitar is what I want to do. Music is what I want to do, because it really does take a lot of sacrifices, you know.
2: Yeah, we had a great local scene in Chicago and a lot of really talented musicians. I had some great teachers early on that were very influential. You know, my first teacher showed me all songs and got me so inspired about playing like being able to play the music that I loved on guitar. And didn't turn it into like a you know you're going to learn how to read music and have no fun on this thing kid you know um so having that early on and i had a great second teacher tj helmrich who's incredibly technically proficient and um you know taught me all the tapping techniques that eventually really helped me with night ranger be able to do all the eight finger stuff and um you know that that was lucky and and i grew up in a local band scene with like you know danny donnegan from disturbed you know like i mean we had a great scene there was a lot of great guys and a lot of talent um uh, people that were inspiring to be around we were all i mean that the 80s we were all trying to outdo each other back then you know it was like it was it was uh, a big question was how many hours a day are you practicing back then you know and that was uh, that was a a good environment. Some of it might have been a little bit backwards and not musical. We were all kind of learning to shred before we really understood a lot of musicality and understood a lot of uh, what it is to be a pro. But in the end, it's still all good for you when you spend that amount of time with your guitar. And, um, and then one of the best things that happened was that scene kind of went away by the time I was old enough to do anything with it. And that set me off on that weird path that I'm telling you about of doing all this different stuff. And I feel like that did... Uh, a number of things for me made me more well-rounded and maybe more of an actual musician than just like a you know quote-unquote shredder and uh, also made me more grateful which we touched on earlier because by the time things do start working out for you and you go man like there were many times I figured this was not going to work out all that great and that I was just gonna but I was always kind of happy with that too the, the main motivation for me was always to be able to do this for a living and um, it was never really like to, you know, have a mansion or have you know sports cars or anything like that. It was like I just want to be able to do this, uh, and not have to take a, another job, different. Like yeah, you know, I just that would have been that would have been the failure for me. Not necessarily like oh, you know, this guy didn't sell a million albums because I I haven't. So I mean, I missed that whole window of time when that was going on and to. Uh, be in a band like that, and I didn't have the business savvy about me enough to go like, oh, the 90s are in, let me completely change my image and try and get in a band that's doing that, and I mean, I was just, I was just interested in playing guitar, so I did all kinds of stuff, I mean, I was in like wedding bands, and I mean, I did all kinds of uh, stuff that people would be like, really, like, you did that, you know, it's it's not the normal path of a lot of the 80s guitar heroes that um, achieved a lot of um, success when they were like 21 it you know, was a lot yeah. Of, yeah so different path but it's all good man it all worked out and like i said i think in the end i appreciate it more in this moment to have the opportunities and i don't feel as jaded as
1: some Listening through, you know, your your Cliff Note version of your career, which which is impressive as Cliff Notes, So I'm sure <laughs> the the uh, the long version, you can probably write a, a pretty epic book about. But you know, you're talking about a lot of opportunities and luck. Which you know, they say like you know, the finding the opportunity and being prepared is the luck. Um, were there any transitions uh, throughout your career, or any times where? Um, you were in one gig and maybe an opportunity was kind of showing its head and you weren't sure whether it was worth it to leave your current position or were there any difficult decisions where that where maybe just the timing didn't line up where you thought like, oh, if, if only you know, this was a week later, I could have jumped on that tour.
2: Oh, all of it. I mean, having, when you have multiple gigs, that's always a that's a terrible situation in a way. It's great, it's a blessing, but it's this awful thing because you care so much about every opportunity you get but when you're unavailable for something and you need to go do something else, it makes the people that are there think maybe he doesn't appreciate it. And it's like you actually do. You're just trying to uh, have the opportunity to, like, keep going and do it year round, um, which is a hard thing to find. You know, there's not many bands that are like, hey, we're going to work all 12 months this year. So as musicians, are you know, are you? supposed to take three months off and just not do anything and that kind of you know so it's always tricky i'd say the one that stands out the most with that would be um trans-siberian i mean it's funny now because i look at that like one of the greatest things that's come my way in my life i mean i'm still with it 12 years later Um, but at the time when i officially got offered the job i was scared because i had rock of ages already i was playing these eight shows a week and i was subbing out and playing with night ranger and so this was like hey now you're gonna have to take two months out of the year and tell each of them you're not available um and that that was a difficult period that was that was difficult to to tell night ranger because i loved being there and loved you know those guys gave me a huge break in letting me join their band and Um, and Rock of Ages was a big break for me and really changed my life. It wasn't something that I necessarily uh, dreamt about as a kid or saw coming, but it really did change my life. So it was a weird thing to take each of those and go, okay, I have to go do this now for two months. And eventually, I just kind of thought, the more you have going on, the more stability you have. Like if Rock, in the back of my mind, it was like if Rock of Ages closes, or if for some reason Night Ranger decides we're not going to tour anymore, or somebody's health is compromised and the band can't tour anymore. I just always kept thinking you want to have, you want to have as many things going as possible to have some stability. Does that make
3: sense? Sure, no, I, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah. I encounter that a lot in the classical world too, especially as like a hired gun violinist, where you know I'm a part of a million different projects, and of course you have to make choices like that. But I think what an interesting thing about you, though, is I mean you have such a an amazing on stage personality and, and personality in your playing that I think to a certain degree probably comes down to people are going to value you being a part of them as well. You know, you're not replaceable easily. So I, I think yeah, being a part of a lot of things too, but but. You know, I think whenever you're gone from something, that's that's missed. You know, it's it's very hard to put someone else in your shoes. Uh,
2: I mean, I'm not delusional. I think everybody's replaceable. Um, You can think that, but it's you're usually wrong. You know, to to go there mentally. Uh, Everybody's replaceable, so um, it's uh, for me. I it's why I try to do the best I can all the time. That maybe even to some degree, they'd say yeah, you know, kind of miss that about him or, you know, he used to do this or at least set the bar as high as I can. But that's, I I think that's all you can do. But in the end, everybody's replaceable in every gig, so.
0: Well, let me ask you this, because you said when you originally started playing that it was ACDC that, you, you know, Angus Young, obviously a lot of people started back in black who do you consider to be some of the archetypical players, whether they're guitarists or even, you know, for me, it was like Freddie Mercury made me want to get into music as much as Eddie Van Halen did. Who do you think, like, really said, dude, this is for you? Because you said Angus Young, but I see you on stage, and you have, it's like you have such, like like Siobhan said, such a personality. Where does that come from? Uh, uh
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about all that like the the stage <laughs> presence thing is probably maybe just like a personality and it's a little bit different with each gig depending on what's called for. I think that the stage presence thing, I got a big kick in the butt uh from Brad Gillis and Jack Blades joining that band because the way Night Ranger set up with Kelly facing sideways and the keyboards on the other side. So those that haven't seen the night ranger stage setup and then it's it was it was brad stage left and jack center and and myself and um stage right i think that uh i I mean I, i remember joining that band and going over to japan pretty early on and going center stage with brad for the harmony solos and stuff and I was like holding my guitar a little higher back then and looking at my guitar a little more, making sure I played like super clean. And I'd look over and Brad was making eye contact with the audience and putting on a show and everybody was looking at him, you know, and I thought, okay, I can't go out like this and have it be like, you know, I'm on stage and I look like a guy who has no stage presence. So those guys definitely uh, helped me have... They're very lively on stage. Both of those guys, as performers, Brad and Jack, are real fun to watch play. And um, so I think that that was a you know a big inspiration in terms of getting me moving on stage and trying to be more entertaining to watch. And then TSO is a little different. It's a real wide stage, the width of the arena. So usually you're kind of alone in your spot when you're around the front and. It's your job to kind of hold the audience's attention when you're in that spot. So that was the same to a degree because you needed to be visually entertaining and kind of hold people's attention when you were there, but it wasn't as interactive. You weren't like going with the other bandmates in those moments. It's kind of more like, okay, you need to, it's your job when you're over on the left wing or whatever to entertain the crowd that's right there. You don't want to just go over there and stand there and. <laughs> um, and then Wh- White Snake is about that too, um, but we're a lot more uh, about the vocals and David kind of uh, moving about the stage. And then you have your moments uh, where it's really about you. Um, so everything's every every gig was a little bit different. And then Share, I mean, we were on a bandstand in the background, not visible for the majority of the gig, and then I was the only band member to step out one time on my own during a wardrobe change of hers to kind of hold the crowd during a guitar bit and, uh, and then a couple times of stepping out just with her. And so, of course, every moment's different. Like when you're stepping out with her, then you're, you're trying to figure out, all right, how do I mesh with her visually and make it work? So a lot of that came down to working the opposite side of the stage. If she was going to go stage left, then I would go stage right to balance the stage so people on one side weren't we we'll get you bored and, and and then sometimes when we'd cross she'd want to interact and so you had to be kinda of ready for whatever she would do with that and so every every gig is, has its own its own stage presence too. I think eventually you got to kind of.
0: What kind of interaction does Cher throw at you last minute when you're on stage? Because like, I'd love to know that. Like you're in front of a crowd, you're 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 about to, to cross pass. What does she do?
2: Oh, right, right, right. if you're cross cross pass, sometimes she wanted to do the back to back, or you know, she'd sometimes rest her uh, arm on my shoulder or whatever and sing, and um, so things like that. That you know, you just kind of have to be ready for if she's going to do it and be like, okay, and not look like a deer in headlights, and kind of look like you're, you know, but at the same time, don't become known as the guy who knocked over Cher accidentally (laughs) on stage. (laughs) You'd be on TMZ later that night or whatever. So, um, yeah, just things like that. Like, so, I mean, it wasn't anything, like, insane, but you, she, she, She really varied it up. Like she would rarely do the same thing from night to night in those moments. So you kind of had to be ready for whatever she had in mind.
1: In all of your projects, there's like kind of the two schools of thought. And we've we've talked to to bands and artists that do it both ways. There's some artists that want every night to be you know very planned, very calculated. There's not a lot of deviation. I I imagine anything with a crazy you know light show like some of your projects and and all that, like that. And then there's (laughs) bands that want to make sure that you know it stays fresh throughout the tour and that there's uh like a a spontaneity to the performance like what what kind of shows do you prefer uh when you're up there performing either way um
2: you know David is a lot like Cher where he rarely says the same thing between songs uh he varies it up a lot his raps he'll you know do different things from show to show and that's a lot of fun It can keep it like interesting and it doesn't feel like oh here we go let's go through the motions of a show so um, I think a mix but you kind of want to know what to expect obviously uh, to a degree not like hey let's play this song instead right now you know (laughs) I haven't gone through that or you know so I think uh, some kind of mixture of that is probably ideal
3: yeah absolutely um, can we talk really quick, if we, if we still have a minute, um, I, I'm curious to hear about your early experience with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, because that, to me, even as a string player on the side of the stage, was an amazing, amazing, life-changing moment just to, like, sort of experience that, and I'm curious, what was your perspective coming into that for the first time, your first year as a guitar player, if you could talk a little bit about that?
2: Uh, well, that was my first time headlining arenas with anything, so... Um... That was, I mean, it's a it's a intimidating gig at first because there's a lot of people and there's a lot of people telling you, you know, try this, try this, do this, play it this way, maybe try that, and so uh, there's a lot of voices and trying to, you know, my nature is to want to make everybody happy, obviously, right? Uh, when you have a a gig, so um, that was. I mean it was really exciting and and nerve-wracking all at once I think it my first year in particular uh, going into that and then once you get one tour under your belt you feel a little bit better about everything and go okay I survived one uh, but you know it's now I've been there a while and um, it's uh, the nature of it has changed just in terms of it feels a lot more like a family. You know, once you're there year after year and, and you see the same faces, it, it, it does have a great feeling. Like I, I really enjoy touching base and feel like I have a friendship with management all the way down to the local string sections or, you know, the people working at the venues. And, um, so there is, um, the the nature of it changes the first year you're meeting all those people for the first time so Mm -hmm. it's a different feeling for sure
3: yeah can I ask you what what was it like to work with Paul O'Neill
2: great Paul I mean was really um, somebody who gave me a lot of confidence so I the way it worked out I, I think was I had very little notice uh, in terms of what music to learn, and then to audition with Al Petrelli, mm-hmm. who's the music director of the band, and that's typically your first your your first audition is with Al if you're a musician coming into the band, and then you get to go back then audition with Paul. And um, I think that they they were taking video footage of me, and you guys were talking about the stage presence thing, but I kind of need an audience or be playing with a band to do that stuff and so I was just kind of standing still (laughs) playing some of the stuff what I had learned and also I just learned it the night before so I wasn't like incredibly confident Um, so I I think at first maybe the general consensus was that I played well enough but I didn't really have any stage presence and then (laughs) I was lucky enough to have... Um, a performance on America's Got Talent with Rock of Ages kind of happen and I remember sending the video of that, the link to the talent coordinator kind of as a like well I guess I didn't get that gig but I'm just going to send this to her anyway just in case and lo and behold that that got me my second audition with Paul because then he saw me doing some of my rock stuff on TV and thought all right, okay, this guy knows how to, like, rock out and, you know, be on a stage. And so that got me my – that really had a lot to do with getting me in TSO, oddly enough. Um, so – and it was funny because I, d- I thought I hadn't got it. I mean I had pretty much given up on it at that point. I just sent that as like a, well, I'll send it just in case. And then things That's ended up working amazing. out. <laughs> yeah, it's It's weird, right? And then now here I am like 12 years later, all the way from that moment of just sending an email going, I guess I'll just send it anyway.
0: Well, do you do you think that that's important now, especially for other musicians to realize that the, the visual and that the, the, the energy transfers so that even though you can play, let's say like Ingve, but if you don't have, you know, the, the, the panache and the presence that it's not going to get you any further, like people going on auditions?
2: Well, I think everybody's got their own path and their own story to write, you know, so it's, you know, what worked for me doesn't necessarily work for everybody. And obviously there's so many different uh, ways to approach all this stuff, like not just playing, but being on stage and what's cool and what's not. And um, so I, I think the one thing that kind of holds true is that the people that succeed work really hard and they spend a lot of time doing it um so even some of the 80s bands that maybe aren't like virtuosos on their instruments but they set out to be rock stars which wasn't necessarily my mindset as i told you i was more like i just want to be able to play guitar for a living but some of those guys maybe aren't the technicians on their instrument that um some of these guys on youtube are these days but that doesn't mean they didn't work insanely hard at building the business of their band and pour a lot of passion and heart and soul into launching that. So I think in the end, it's like how much work you put into what it is you want to do, but everybody has their own story to write. And
0: that's, that's really interesting what you said though. Cause I, I as a guitarist again, you know, it's one of those things where you see these guys on YouTube and I, and I talk to guitarists after guitars and all these incredible bands. Because I know that no matter how well you play, someone's going to be like, but have you seen this guy's handle? And they bring up some mind-nubbing technique and somebody's playing something for 43 seconds who's probably never played in a garage, smoked a cigarette, done any drugs, drank any alcohol, but they sat in their room. What do you think about... You know, the guys who spent all their lives, they didn't have YouTube and they grew up and, and, and they learned it versus the dudes that sit in the rooms and they can play everything. They can do the Guthrie Govan, but they never smelled cigarettes in the, in, in the casino next door.
2: Um, uh, you know, I try to be the first person to tell people that they're amazing when they are, you know, rather than like hate on it or be like, you know, find negatives in it. I'd rather look at that and go, well, that's amazing. Um, I mean, I, I know what you mean. There, there's some, there's a lot of extremely technically proficient guitar players out there. I think it's awesome. I mean, if it's if it keeps it all alive, it keeps music alive, and it keeps people working on music. Um, Maybe some of the scenarios aren't ideal, like people will talk about the singing shows like American Idol or The Voice and things like that, but at the end of the day, that's still inspiring kids out there. There's still kids that watch those shows, and it still inspires them to actually want to sing, and maybe it's not the same path of like growing up and going and playing club dates and and, uh, playing in cover bands, but like I said, everybody's got their own path, you know, and uh, Their own story to write. I think what's important is the hard work that people put in and the, the passion and, you know. I mean, I I, in general, I just try to wish everybody well with that stuff. I'd rather not put out negative energy and go, oh, that guy's just the, you know. It's like, no. I mean, that deserves to be recognized. That's hard work, put in to develop that technique, and we just have different pass you know I mean I've That's been, I've been around now. and done all this weird stuff and so but I, I think it's all to be respected in the end there's uh, should never be disrespect um, it's the it's the wrong path to take mentally I think uh, with other musicians you know I, I try to be the first person when there's another great guitar player um, to compliment them rather than to um, get my fur up and feel competitive, you know?
3: No, absolutely. Well, there's too much of that on the internet already. <laughs> and, you know,
2: at the end of the day, I mean, I like to say that, like, life is not a talent contest. Does that, like, you know, I'd rather be friends with people and, uh, you know, if they're an, especially if they're awesome musicians Then like, why wouldn't, you know, of course, I'd like them to, you know, be like, hey, yeah, Joel, he's a nice guy, you know, that's so... Um, yeah, I, I go for that rather than the, you know, screw that guy. He's just this, you know, it's like, it's negative energy. It's like, don't, it, yeah. To me, it's like wasted, it's wasted energy. It doesn't really help anybody.
1: That's great. And speaking of helping people, uh, you know, you talked a little earlier about, you know, you're, you're teaching uh, and, and you taught a lot of students at one point. And as someone who's taught in the past, like kudos to you, Let's, that's, a, that's a full-time job right there. Um, but is that something that you still enjoy um, in sharing you know, what you do with others?
2: It went away for a very long time. It went away during that whole, like I said, when I started to do Love, Janice, I didn't teach at all. And that really lasted for 20 years. And then when COVID kicked in, and I realized that it was gonna be really a long haul, Uh, I decided to give it a whirl again and teach virtually and took on 30 students a week. And, um, you know, to me, that was something that really helped me through the last couple years. And I'm still even doing some of it right now. I I don't know now that I'm ever going to necessarily entirely let it go because I kind of view it as something constructive that I can do on the road that kind of keeps me – it takes my mind out of... It's almost therapeutic. When you're on a tour, sometimes the only thing you talk about and think about is the tour. Yeah. And I'm so sure. it, yeah. It, it helps to kind of get get with people for 45 minutes and talk about guitar, and and it keeps me on my guitar. And then maybe playing some other things other than just playing the set, right? Once you're... So uh, I think it's, it's kind of reborn with COVID into uh, my life, and I think I'll probably... You know, barring unforeseen circumstances, keep it around uh, a bit. I'm still going to do it on days off on this tour. Um, I don't see any reason that, you know, especially still with COVID still being really a part of our lives um, and being out there. I mean, I think I'm better off kind of hanging in and staying safe and like playing my guitar in my room, teaching some lessons and that's better than going out to crowded places and hanging yeah. out and rolling the dice on, on getting <laughs> sick and delaying, you know, whatever, having a few shows get canceled.
1: And, right. Yeah.
3: Sure. Absolutely. How do you that's keep great. up your energy? Um, Cause you have a lot of it. It seems I would think on a day off it's you're exhausted, but you manage to find time to teach students and keep all of that going. So how, how do you keep that level of energy?
2: Uh it, you know honestly it's not like I get on the road and it doesn't feel that hard for me. I I have two small kids at home. So when it's at home can be difficult like you know I'll feel like basically every moment of my day is spoken for. I'll be like I get up and I start working and I work all the way till maybe the last hour of the day and I'll just you know zone out on Netflix for an hour and then go to bed. Uh, so I get on the road and I actually feel like, Hey, I've got a little window of time to chill and relax right now. So it, it almost gets a little easier when I get on. To,
0: on
2: to, I hate to say that. But.
0: So what you're saying, white snake is easier mentally than having two small children.
2: Uh, well, getting on tour is less taxing. I mean, my other friends, my other musician friends that our parents all kind of say that too. I'll say sometimes sure. I debate like, is it harder being on tour? Or is it harder being at home? And pretty much everybody <laughs> says it's harder being at home. Like you're putting in more work. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I it it comes down to for me that motivation of uh, breaking it down to every day, like trying to be productive. So. Um, I ne- never, like, I can't even remember the last time I've had a day where I didn't do something productive for my music career and my job. Um, it's e- every single day. I mean, I even had a day off that I didn't do something in, in months. So, um, it, you know, that just, I, I guess, is part of that, like, just try to be consistent and, and do, be productive every
0: day and work hard and do your best.
3: Yeah, absolutely, inspiring. And I think it helps to have a plan, you know, to know what, where you wanna go.
0: It really sounds to me though, and, and, and I can relate to this, that for you being productive, like whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's teaching a lesson, whether it's playing a show, whether it's starting a new endeavor, is like kind of what seems to feed your happiness. And you use a lot of uh, you know, putting your energy out there. Like I definitely am an energy guy in that like if you put out good energy, it'll come back. you put out negative energy, it'll come back. How important is that as far as like in your everyday life, do you just go, you know what? The universe is doing this for me today.
2: Yeah, I'm a big believer in that for sure. Um, uh, David is as well Coverdale you know he's a real Positive energy guy Um, So I think You know we relate very well In that regard Um, David's really great about keeping it positive And um, I enjoy that enjoy being around him Because of that and so Yeah I I think it's Yeah I think it's really important I think having uh, Putting out the negativity Like you said that, that does come back To you
1: Joel, we know we know you're a busy guy. We we appreciate you taking the time to hang with us. Um, you know you're you're in rehearsals now, but like, is there anything you want to let people know about to keep an eye out for, or anything upcoming you want to tell uh, our several dozen listeners and viewers about?
2: Well, I'm obviously, sure. you know, taking off here on the White Snake yeah. Farewell Tour. So we're starting off in the UK with Foreigner, and Europe, uh, the band Europe. Uh, and then uh, we're gonna the th- final countdown yeah and then we're gonna tour Europe with Europe and uh, <laughs> there's some us dates coming you know uh, everybody needs to realize we wouldn't do a farewell tour without playing in the US but obviously I can't announce anything until the band does mm-hmm. um, but you know we're gonna I I think, you know, have this go all the way into 2023 and, and go to some other territories. We're not going to be able to squeeze it all in this year. Um, and obviously, at the end of the year, I'll have the Trans-Siberian Orchestra Tour, and um, I have a new Uh, video that's out from a project called Iconic that um, is with Michael Sweet and uh, from Striper and Nathan James singing and my bandmate Tommy Aldridge on drums and Marco Mendoza on bass and you can check out the uh, first single there's a video called Nowhere to Run the band is called Iconic Um, Frontier's kind of got us together so people could go check that out it's new and uh. killer lineup dude thanks yeah and uh there, that album comes out let's see uh, i want to say it's june 27 but i don't want to get the day wrong uh, i'm not looking at the <laughs> don't have it right in front of me but i i believe it's june 27 so um we'll double anyway, check that. That, that that album's coming i have another project that i'm a part of that's not announced yet that i'm excited about um so staying busy man
3: <laughs> where can everyone follow you just to keep up with your all of your projects
2: I do all of it except TikTok because I'm not, you know, I don't know how to dance.
3: I'm with you, man. (laughs) I can't keep up with that. But I'm on
2: Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I like to keep it about the music business and what I'm doing. And... Not all the social issues of our world and all that stuff. Uh, Keep a positive. No, you're a super
3: right. positive guy. I, I love all the. Content that's for bigger minds
2: are. than mine. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody seems to like have the answer for the world's problems these days. Um,
3: oh yeah, we I do not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, have, I have enough trouble showing up and knowing the songs at rehearsals. So uh, well,
0: yeah. that's actually an well, it important seems like question. You're killing it Because so. yeah. you're, you're doing this final tour with White Snake, and, and obviously talk about one of the most pivotal bands in rock history how do you go or i'm sure david's probably the one doing but how do you guys go about putting together a set list if this is going to be the final time i mean like there's such a crazy career like are we going to be in for a crazy treat are we hearing new stuff are we hearing old stuff that we haven't heard in years like what's coming out for this tour
2: well, I mean, I, I can't talk about the set list until we start gigging, you know. But I I mean, it, it usually is. It's David, mm-hmm. no big surprise that would say like, you know, I'm thinking this for a set. But he usually asks Reb and and asks myself, um, you know, what do you guys think? And um, and during rehearsals, he asks everybody and says, you know, what do you think? What do you, you know? But. Um, so in general, I mean, obviously, it, it, David is going to be the person who's kind of going. I'm thinking this would be the the a cool set and the right songs to play. And for the most part, we're always in agreement. Anyway, I mean, I, White Snake has a, such a great catalog, man. I really enjoy playing so much of the music. So I'm I'm, I'm a little bit of, of of an easygoing guy with all that stuff. It's like, hey, just give me the songs and I'm happy to play them. Like just tell me what we're doing and. And yeah. I'm I'm down. Sounds cool to me.
3: That's awesome. You're you're the ideal band partner. It's hard to find someone like that.
0: <laughs> Just tell me what That's to awesome. play and I'll play it. Pretty much. Pretty much, man.
3: Yeah. You know. That's All great. Right. Well,
1: thank you again for taking the time to speak with us, Joel. yeah, uh, really it's, appreciate it's, it. It's great to hear, you know, what was you know your story and what you have going on. We can't wait to see uh, you know the stuff coming out. We'll definitely check out iconic and everything and uh, we're going to let you get back to your very busy life but uh, check out 2020-D.com like and subscribe and we will see you guys next week thank you for checking out this episode of 2020 please visit 2020-D.com like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes this week's throwback clip is from episode number 134 featuring Chris Caffery of Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Sabotage check it out and we were playing a lot of bars during the week. I was playing in bars and going to high school. next, We opened for Metallica when I was in high school and when I went to high school the next day. The funniest thing about that is in this same house here, we were playing in a theater in Port Jervis opening for, for Metallica at Overkill. And the people from Megaforce contacted me because Metallica needed somewhere to stay and my mother wouldn't let Metallica stay in the house.
2: Hello, Tom May here Host of Future Friday I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds Of wild and fascinating people So I started a podcast